is essentially the idea that rather than trying to change society only by attempting to influence uh, working within and ultimately taking over the state, um, which is an institution of top-down elite rule, um, we should instead be building up a new base of power outside it. And by assembling institutions of community, care, cooperation, direct democracy, uh, and self-determination, we can build and channel working class power um, to challenge capitalism and the state um, and over time to displace them. Um, so in other words, to create the new world in the shell of the old, um, to borrow from the industrial workers of the world. Um, so I'll be moderating our discussion with four incredible panelists, uh, each of whom are working and struggling to uh, bring such a dual power into being in their communities. So today we're joined by Saki Hall, who is the operations director of Cooperation Jackson in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, Bitta Sharma, uh, a newly elected member of the Mar Vista um, Neighborhood Council in Los Angeles, California. Glenn Miles, uh, founder of Detroit Build and Fight in Detroit, Michigan, and a member of Black Socialists in America. And Taj Morris, an artist and activist also with Detroit Build and Fight and Black Socialists in America. So I have uh, a few questions prepared for our panelists, but we will also be having an extended period for audience questions uh, later in our session. So if you have any questions, please just put them in the chat um, and specify which panelists it's intended for. It's not for everyone. Um, and we'll circle back around to those when we get to them. Um, so I just want to open it up with a question to um, each of our panelists, um, which is about what your local conditions are like and how that shapes your work. Um, I think one of the most important things um, that we kind of learned from being in network and relationship with one another's organizations is how much um, local circumstances from the structure of local government to um, the economic situation um, and many other things is how much uh, local conditions vary from place to place, even within the same country. Um, so even if we share a common strategy uh, for revolutionary politics, it'll look um, very different from one place to the next. Um, so if you could just each introduce yourselves and your work by telling us a little bit about your local organizing context, um, how it shapes your organizing, your approach, um, and what grassroots direct democracy looks like um, in your community. Um, so we'll start with Saki um, and then uh, pass it along to each of you. Can we actually come back to me? Uh, sure. Um, Bitta, are you able to go and yeah, sure, I can kick it off. Um, well, hi, everybody. Um, thanks so much to Mason and the other panelists and to the organizers in, of this uh, awesome Fearless Summit, Cities Summit. So my name is Bitta Sharma. My preferred pronouns are she, her, and I'm joining you from Los Angeles, California. I live in a neighborhood on the west side of the city called Mar Vista. 
So I should start out by saying that I'm quite new to Los Angeles, having moved here in the summer of 2019, shortly before the pandemic shut everything down. Um, so while I haven't had an opportunity to become embedded in the deep history of activism in the city, I can offer a newcomer's perspective. My introduction to organizing in LA is through the local chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, or DSA, which has grown recently to over 5,000 members in LA. Like many of the newer members of our chapter, I volunteered for the 2020 Bernie Sanders campaign and joined DSA following Bernie's primary defeat so I could continue organizing with socialists at the local level. And because of this, my exposure to the local organizing context has been shaped by what's going on in DSA, as well as our chapter's efforts in solidarity with other activist groups in the city. So just some high level info, many of you might already know, um, LA is the second largest city in the US with a population of about 4 million people. The LA City Council is notoriously unrepresentative with only 15 city council members, each representing over a quarter of a million people. There are 60,000 homeless people in LA County and we have the barbaric distinction of allowing five unhoused people to die every day on the streets of our city. Even before the COVID crisis, Angelinos existed in a state of deep economic precarity and vulnerability. Um, three out of four households in our city are rent burdened, and about half of LA renters are severely rent burdened, meaning they spend over half their income on rent. And again, these are all pre-pandemic numbers, so you can imagine it's been exacerbated since. Um, like many parts of the world, the city of LA is undergoing a sort of political realignment. This is partly a result of the huge uprising and radical wave of activism following George Floyd's murder in the spring of 2020. And the city has a long history of police violence and spends roughly $3 billion annually on law enforcement. So anti-police activism is nothing new. And of course, as in so many other parts of the world, um, people in Los Angeles have been radicalized by the COVID crisis and the climate emergency. That there's um, incredibly important work and coalition building being done on the ground by activist groups around labor, tenants' rights, anti-racism and abolition, climate, public transit, healthcare, and more. One great example of grassroots direct democracy is the People's Budget Process in LA, in which a coalition led by Black Lives Matter LA held a series of town halls and gathered input in various forms on how to shape a people-centered budget and defund the police, which they then presented to the city council. Um, at the city and electoral level, the organizing context is complicated somewhat by a power vacuum at the top right now. We have elections for eight of the 15 city council seats coming up in 2022, um, two of which are up for grabs with no incumbents running. And our neoliberal mayor, Eric Garcetti, Garcetti has basically abdicated his office after being offered an ambassadorship to India by the Biden administration. So we're currently in a tense situation where there's a total lack of leadership in a city ravaged by the COVID pandemic, skyrocketing inequality, and an immense housing and homelessness crisis. Activists on the left who saw some gains in 2020 are pitted right now against activists on the reactionary right who are coming out of the woodwork, exploiting the many crises of capitalism, to call for more police, more criminalization of unhoused neighbors and increased privatization of our public spaces. So against this backdrop, I've spent most of my energies organizing at the hyper-local level to support 
on house neighbors and campaign for a seat on my local neighborhood council. I'll start by talking about our unhoused outreach and we'll then touch on the neighborhood council project, which is the main impetus for joining this panel today. So over the course of the last couple of years, visible homelessness has increased dramatically across LA due to a number of factors. And this means there are more and larger homeless encampments in just about every neighborhood across the city, including my neighborhood of Mar Vista. A group of local organizers in my neighborhood has followed the example of an LA-based group called Streetwatch, which grew out of DSALA. Streetwatch is committed to empowering and protecting the rights of poor and unhoused tenants across the city. One of their standard actions is called a power-up table, which involves setting up a table near an encampment with supplies like food and water, clothing, harm reduction like Narcan, legal aid, political education, as well as stations, for charging their devices, which gives the power-up table its name. We've started these weekly power-up tables at local encampments in Mar Vista, and over the course of several months have developed strong and trusting relationships with all the residents there. Their experience on the street is absolutely brutal and belies all the usual myths spouted by anti-homeless reactionaries everywhere, like, you know, they're newcomer, they're newcomers, they're not from the area, um, they're housing resistant, they, they're offered housing and don't want it, etc. So in addition to providing ongoing support and solidarity, we've begun building a network of people and organizations in the neighborhood to help with all the services the city refuses to provide, like trash pickup, food delivery, sanitation, connecting people to public aid, emergency housing um, in crisis situations like those involving domestic violence. This is all possible because we're all right there in the neighborhood. We're a short walk or bike ride away from the encampments and we have connections in the hyperlocal community. At this point, we've provided far more outreach and services to the unhoused in our neighborhood and have far more information and insight into their specific backgrounds and needs than any city official. <clears throat> And to go back to the definition we're using for dual power, I think in a small way, we're building new systems that erode capitalist and state institutions by meeting basic human needs, channeling collective action and challenging the legitimacy of the existing system. So I also just wanna share a bit about the Neighborhood Council project. Um, in 2020, DSALA adopted a resolution called Build the Bench to build a bench of socialist candidates at the municipal level. One of the central projects of this resolution is the Neighborhood Council Project, which aims to get DSA members elected to local neighborhood councils across the city. There are 99 of these councils in LA and the final set of elections just wrapped up a few weeks ago. We had a 70% uh, win rate, and so we have 120 socialists elected to councils across the city now. Here in Mar Vista, I ran with a slate of 13 socialist candidates for our local council. We ran as Mar Vista for All, and put forth a detailed platform centered on class struggle, anti-racism, and ending systemic oppression of BIPOC, the LGBTQ plus community, immigrants, and the unhoused. We knocked on hundreds of doors, sent handwritten letters to almost 2,000 neighbors, and focused heavily on renters who make up 65% of the Mar Vista population, but are systematically excluded and disenfranchised. Myself and two other candidates on our slate were elected, and now that the first cycle of elections is over, we, we all face across the city this daunting task of working collectively to push a socialist platform citywide. So what are neighborhood councils and how do they fit into today's conversation about dual power? LA's neighborhood council system was established in 99 
primarily as a way to quash a secession movement by conservative forces in uh, the San Fernando Valley. So for decades, politically conservative homeowners and business interests in the Valley pushed to secede from LA and creating these neighborhood councils was a way of devolving some of that power to the local level to appease them and it worked. So given this background, neighborhood councils are touted as a way of increasing civic engagement and making sure hyper-local concerns are heard by city council. Um, voting is actually open to a very broad group of people. Anyone 16 years old or older, regardless of citizenship status, can vote, whether you live, work, own property, or participate in a community organization in the neighborhood, you can vote. So you might think these councils are engines of local democracy that can hold the city council's feet to the fire and be a real municipal force. But unfortunately, this is not the case, as you might imagine. Only a tiny fraction of Angelinos participate in their councils. Um, 700 people voted in the last election prior to this one in our um, neighborhood, which has 100,000 stakeholders, 700 people out of 100,000 people. And the folks who run for seats and participate are typically older white property owners with lots of time on their hands to volunteer for these positions and work. The councils are allotted some city funds, which they can allocate to local nonprofits, but they cannot write or vote on legislation, and instead they play a purely advisory role vis-a-vis -vis the city. So they can officially endorse or reject city council motions by issuing community impact statements, basically weighing in on city action. So the question, why, why did we do this push to run socialists for neighborhood councils? Well, for one, first, they're low-hanging electoral fruit. So many of the seats were uncontested, so they were kind of there for the taking. And even in the more contested races like ours in Mar Vista, we could win seats with a few hundred votes. Um, second, there's this opportunity for socialists to work in concert across multiple neighborhood councils to push for specific motions, to fund larger community projects, to pressure local officials, and more. And finally, we have an opportunity to wield the council's seats for deeper community organizing. So, for example, the organization we created for our slates campaign, Mar Vista for All, will continue on as a sort of guerrilla community council doing direct outreach and organizing in our neighborhood in concert with other grassroots organizations. Um, but at the end of the day, the councils are creatures of a centralized and unrepresentative city. So, they tend to reproduce that structure and continue to benefit the interests of profit-seeking real estate developers and business owners. And I think the big question, and it's an open question, especially considering this dual power framework is whether there's a potential for them to be radically transformed into bodies for exercising direct grassroots democracy or whether outside channels are gonna be the only way to go. So thanks everybody, that's all I got. Thank you so much. Um... Lots of food for thought there. I'm gonna hand it over to uh, Glenn and Tosh. Hey there, folks. So yeah, I'm Glenn Miles. I'm in uh, Detroit, Michigan uh, in the US. Uh, I, I prefer data and pronouns. Um, I'm, as mentioned before, part of uh, Black Socialists in America. And I helped to co-found an organization here in the city called uh, Detroit Building Fight um we're getting into the context of the city and so the context of this city detroit uh one of those uh one really important element is that this is a predominantly black city in america and unfortunately um despite this being a predominantly black city i would say that the autonomy of the black people in this city is definitely not 
<clears throat> not as um how do I put it it's not definitely uh taken into consideration as much as it should be with regards to the the um actual governance of this city and a lot of a lot of things that people have to engage with in order to meet their basic needs are often outside of the bounds of the general economy like the, the standard uh workforce the standard um just means of exchange um there's a lot of different elements that operate in more of a communal sense than within uh more of a standard economy uh, economic exchange model that you may see across some other cities and a thing that Taj often points out about the city is that this is definitely one of the a key place in the in this country where uh, capital has definitely uh, basically fled in mass in a really short period of time, and you can see in the infrastructure, in the standards of living, and things like that, how those impacts have uh, affected the most marginalized in this area. So. When we get into really getting into the weeds of what dual power is and things like that, it's really important to hold that context in mind with regards to history and with regards to social movements and how they've emerged throughout history um, from the civil rights to now. Um, there's a lot of conjoining and interrelated factors that tie into how we got to where we are. And there are things that are going on now that are just, in a lot of ways, repetitions of has um, issues that Black people the world over, but especially in America, have faced um, you know, throughout time. Um, for instance, to get into talking about some of the more context here, um, we, we have various different committees and councils um, that are supposed to be community-led and supposed to be ran by members who actually live in the city. And while, yes, the people who are on these boards live in the city, a lot of times these folks don't tend to operate with the public in mind. They tend to operate and make decisions for a wide swath of people without much consideration for their contribution and what it is they're seeking to attain from their city government. Uh, an example of this recently would be uh, the Detroit City Charter Revision Commission. Um, there were folks who were working to revise the city's charter. Um, they spent several years developing a framework that was intended to be more equitable and uh, equal for people in the city of Detroit, uh, taking into account things like water and housing and just basic needs that are often, you know, uh, to be a disadvantage for people in the city to be able to access on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and so, after a long process of analysis and you know coming up with this framework, the they put put it forward to be put on a uh, on the ballot to be voted on in August of this year. And before it had a chance to get to that phase, the state government, the governor stepped in. Um, I think also with the uh, excuse me, I should probably review this. Um, the attorney general's uh, on behalf of the attorney general, the, the governor stepped in to basically uh, stop this from being able to be put on the ballot uh, without there being a review process and a resubmission process for the members of the commission. So the the members of the commission performed that they revised their document, voted their charter, 
and they resubmitted it. And instead of the governor giving it another analysis, they refused to engage with it out of concerns for it, uh, for the legal challenges they may preclude if they were to put forth the reasons why. And instead now this uh, revision of the charter has been taken off of the ballot for August and the people of Detroit are being given the opportunity to vote on a charter if they want to engage with this charter or not that would have been, uh, if enacted, potentially giving people more of an opportunity um, to have some infrastructure, some, you know, and some of their basic needs become a central component of the city governance model and the things that the folks would like to see focused on in this city. And so with that being the case, you have, in my mind, in my view of things, you have a clear indication of a predominantly black city being having their autonomy stripped away from them and not being allowed to engage on a municipal level on how they would like to see their city govern. Um, and there's other examples that could be engaged in, and I'll probably dive into some of those as we continue our discussion. But I think it's very important to consider the ways in which BIPOC and particularly Black people, Indigenous people across the US have often had their ability to even engage with governance, to even engage with you know, the, uh, mandating how they can exist, the, their autonomy as a people to choose which frameworks they want to have uh, be embedded in the way in which they organize their communities, you know, whether that be uh, with regards to food sovereignty and being able to control their diets, which is often a problem in the most marginalized communities, to, again, as I mentioned before, access to clean drinking water and just non-poisonous water that can be harmful to you even if uh, you're just using it to bathe or, you know, for other needs. So um, I think I'm going to leave it at that and let Taj pick it up and you know, add anything that they and he may want to include. But uh, that's just, to me, that, that's a, a lot of the context of Detroit that I think is most important to highlight is that this has been a city that has been very disenfranchised and especially with regards to the way in which capital moves and forms itself. You can see how as this place became uh, something that would, could become a challenge to the white supremacist system that exists here in this, this country and the world at large, um, every, po uh, every possible angle that they can, every form of blocking that they can enact from redlining to, uh, what was it, uh, the displacement of people to create the freeway systems and things like that have been pointed towards the most marginalized people to make sure that they don't have the ability to create institutions that they would like to see that could really prove to be a hassle for the, the capitalist hegemony that we currently live in. Uh, hi, I'm Taj, also a member of Black Socialists in America and Detroit Build and Fight. Uh, just, you know, Glenn covered a lot of ground there and said a lot that I think that I don't need to get into too much more, but just a few quick uh, caveats and uh just wanted to say that um and uh it's not that uh for the proposition p which is the charter that he was talking about 
it is technically still on the ballot, but what exactly it's that the governor, along with other representatives, uh, has brought a lawsuit against it, and that lawsuit is still uh, being. I think I think it might even be scheduled for today, like the hearing for it or something of that sort. So that's a major thing, and it's just the fact that the governor of a state is trying to override the city, which uh, Detroit is a city which has home rule, which means that, you know, if it wanted to enact things of this sort, it is completely uh, within its uh, constitutional rights to do so. But the fact that the apparatus of the state comes down when the people actually try to go through the means which uh, are given to them and told are the right institutions that they are completely uh, trampled upon because there is a massive propaganda campaign going on because there's really no other way to put it. Uh, all, everything you see in the media and the local media is mostly about against uh, the, the charter revisions. And, you know, they take a lot of older black people, like the people who are known to vote in mass and they have them the parading saying, you know, it's what's going to happen to our retirements and uh, the city can't go bankrupt again without taking into any consideration how these changes could actually improve the conditions for the city as a whole and bring the quality of life up for everyone. And, you know, it's interesting because even the mayor of Detroit is not from Detroit and didn't really live here before he became the mayor. So it's a very, it's in a situation where the population of Detroit still clings and a lot of people still cling on to this bourgeois ideal of middle class that is just not possible in America anymore. And they're giving, they're trying to feed them this, uh, this fantasy without trying to actually give any kind of change or any kind of representation on any real level. So the key part of our mission is to build a parallel institution of some sort and just give people the knowledge and the wherewithal to make the changes that the state has not been able to do for going on 50, 60 years now in a city that has been completely ravaged by deindustrialization. And uh, I think that's all I have to say. Awesome, thank you both. Um, Saki, do you wanna take us away? Sure. Hi, you guys. Um, my full name is Saka Jawia Hall. Um, I go by Saki. Everybody calls me Saki and she, her pronouns. And I'm with Cooperation Jackson. Um, Mason mentioned that I'm operations director. I'm also a co-founder of Cooperation Jackson. And I coordinate um, and anchor the work around our community land trust, our Fannie Lou Hamer community land trust. Um, so for transparency, like finding out about doing the panel, um, one of the um, kind of like cheat things that I decided to do, looking at what we were trying to focus on was to um, pull together some of pieces from different presentations that I've done. So I'm gonna share my screen. 
um, and talk us through a few things. Um, and then I'm looking forward to when we open it up for discussion. Um, so bear with me briefly. Okay. And I'm getting a message about my batteries. So, can you guys see that? You see Fannie Lou Hamer and Malcolm yep. X? Okay, cool. Um, so I like to start off with acknowledging um, a few of our ancestors um, and freedom fighters, um, and in particular, Fannie Lou Hamer, um, who's straight out of Mississippi. Um, I'm a transplant to Mississippi. I am born and mostly raised in New York City and um, migrated to the South, first Atlanta and then Jackson to do this work. Um, and I think that Fannie Lou Hamer defines self-determination um, in real simple plain language, which is the process by which a person controls their own life. Um, and also uh, Malcolm X um, says revolution is based on land. Land is the basis of all independence. Land is the basis of freedom, justice, and equality. Um, I also want to recognize that Mississippi is Choctaw land. And something that I learned most recently is the name for the Jackson area specifically, um, which is Chisa uh, Foxa. So I want to um, acknowledge that before I get started and talk about Cooperation Jackson's work, the context of um, our work in Mississippi and Jackson, um, and then our, um, like how that context um, shapes our approach to organizing and what it is that we're doing. Um, so Cooperation Jackson is a vehicle for economic democracy, sustainable community development, and community stewardship of our resources. Our mission is to advance of economic democracy in Jackson by building a vibrant, open solidarity economy that we've really been anchoring um, with the development of a network of cooperatives, particularly worker-owned cooperatives. And, um, and we see cooperatives in the solidarity economy um, being larger than worker-owned cooperatives, right? So we're talking about democratically self-managed enterprises um, and also institutions like the Fannie Lou Hamer Community Trust that we've been developing um, since the beginning and the aspiration of doing things like time banks, alternative currencies, trekkies, et cetera. So we launched on um, May Day in 2014. So we're still really young, <laughs> um, seven years old this past summer. Um, and that was at the start of the Jackson Rising New Economies Conference. So we believe that it's possible to replace the current socioeconomic system of exploitation, exclusion, and the destruction of the environment with a proven democratic alternative. I'll say actually alternatives, because I think there's more than one, right? Um, that we uh, use as inspiration examples that we're learning from that we're um, talking about the, the challenges of and even like what we what we keep um, and and what we shift given the fact that like we're doing this work in 
2021. Um, so, you know, looking at equity, cooperation, and worker democracy, uh, we definitely believe when marginalized and excluded workers and communities are organized in democratic organizations and social movements, because that's still really, really important, they become a force capable of making transformative social change. And I think that that um, also speaks to why we talk about municipalism um, and why we talk about dual power. Um, so real quick, Mississippi, and right now I feel like I'm speaking to the group of us that are here together and we're you know, uh, from or at least living in and doing work um, within the United States empire. Um, but just in case folks who are participating don't really know that much about Mississippi, um, has both the country's largest black population by percentage and its highest poverty rate. Mississippi is noted for being at, at or near the bottom of every major quality of life indicator. Um, and a lot of what um, you all have talking about already is definitely um, similar to issues that we have throughout the state um, in the city of Jackson. Um, and um, I would say in, in a lot of ways, not necessarily with Detroit, but in a lot of ways, because we're in the deep South and in Mississippi, I always ask people who are kind of like on the West Coast or the East Coast to imagine what they're talking about and that being worse. Um, so Jackson became a majority black city in the 1980s. Um, the brothers were talking about Detroit and deindustrialization, the migration of black folks from the South to the North. And then even like the um, the work, the industrialization, and therefore the deindustrialization happened a lot earlier um, in cities like Detroit and Chicago. Um, so white flight facilitated major capital flight from the city um, and the development of the suburbs in the North and the East drained Jackson's tax base. Um, not only white flight, but also black middle-class flight increased when housing values plummeted in the 80s and 90s. And so that increasingly um, created this cycle of divestment and declining social services, um, the housing situation, um, and it's like widespread vacancies. Uh, and I have some photos a little bit later on that you'll be able to see. And so the economic power wealth markets continue to be controlled by a small white elite um, that basically, um, you know, represents and is uh, connected to the small white um, elite that were landowners and and um, and owned enslaved Africans. So these economic and demographic shifts have left, like I said, Jackson with a declining tax base. Um, we have chronic under and unemployment, um, our housing market is depressed, uh, the schools are poorly performing um, and get ratings. See, that to me is a little nuanced um, because our little people go to Jackson Public Schools and a lot of the public schools are doing the best they can and are dope hardworking teachers and still um, overall the, city, the city's public schools um, are considered to be poorly performing. 
Um, and then there's also an antiquated and decaying infrastructure, particularly around water. I don't know if folks have heard about the water issues in Jackson. Um, and all these different challenges, you know, the city are, is trying to overcome in different ways. Um, it's a major hurdle to overcome. And the city's budget um, has been in the decline in the last like seven years that I've been able to witness. Um, it's definitely really a challenge and limits um, what on a municipal level in the city can be done. So, um, so in the political spectrum, even though Jackson became a majority black city, it was more than a decade for the, the demographic shift to actually lead to a political shift. And so it wasn't until 1997 that Jackson elected his first black mayor. Um, and I think that this next point um, is also relevant because the first iteration um, and led partly by the Malcolm X grassroots movement was called the Jackson People's Assembly um, or the first iteration of what later on became a Jackson People's Assembly was called the Grassroots Political Convention. Um, and that was the first major attempt to exert the black power through um, the electoral process. And so fast forwarding with Cooperation Jackson, we were looking at both the alternative models that we talk about in our vision and that's a part of our name. At the same time, we see, and we call it build and fight, we, we see the need to build and to, and to build our um, own stuff. <laughs> and then also to fight um, and to fight for the type of policies that A, are needed and B, can support these um, alternative institutions um, and um, really bringing back a lot of ways that our folks culturally um, and historically survived. Um, so, oh, uh, okay. So last year at a certain point during the pandemic, more towards the end of the year and thinking about the kind of space that we had and how we had to totally shift um, and kind of, and like really halt where things were moving from 2019 into 2020, we decided to um, still have um, some people's assemblies. And because we own um, a plaza in our neighborhood and particularly a big space that used to be a grocery store and left a huge, um, a huge, uh, need of like food um, and access to food in the neighborhood. We're hoping to, and we're planning to bring the grocery store back. In the meantime, we've used the space for um, other programming. And in October, and we had a, a series of, um, I would say three of them starting in August with Black August, we held um, the Autonomous People's Assembly um, and we see the People's Assembly 
as a vehicle to build independent and autonomous political authority of oppressed peoples and exploited classes. Um, and we also very much um, center the black and work working class, the black working class majority community um, of our folks in Jackson. The assemblies are organized as expressions of participatory and direct, direct democracy to help people and communities exercise um, the self-determination that we talk about um, over their lives and their circumstances. And so, um, I don't know, how am I doing on time? Um, we're pretty tight, um, a little bit over. Um, okay, so I'll um, skip to this as the last um, piece that I wanna show, because as we, I showed that, um, kind of slide where there were two circles and four major areas um, that, you know, was our build and fight model. We've um, developed it even more um, and have been um, promoting and um, I think gaining further clarity internally. Um, and even as we engage um, the community both in Mississippi and nationally, we have the build and fight formula. And so these listing of things like mutual aid, food sovereignty, cooperative economics, community production, self-defense, people's assemblies, a general strike, um, democratizing the economy, dual power, and um, free the land are all a part of what we think can radically transform society. Uh, and you see dual power in there, and we've talked about dual power. So I'm gonna stop there and we'll talk more as we move on to the next section. Thank you. Thank you so much, Saki. All right. Okay, so um, I have a second question um, for you all. Um, it's about how we then get from A to B. Um, how do we move from this set of community institutions that exist alongside the present system um, to defeating and replacing them? Um, so I want to um, pull a quote that always struck me from the book Jackson Rising about the work of Cooperation Jackson. Um, uh, that says we are not looking to establish an alternative economic practice that is a quaint little infrastructure um, at the margins of the mainstream economy. Our aim ought to be the development of a counter hegemonic liberating economic and social infrastructure um, whose aim is the liquidation of that predatory exploitative economic system. Um, and I think it's really interesting that you know some of these uh, groups represented here um, have kind of, uh, at least at this stage, taken a different approach to these things. Um, you can sort of think of it as the inside strategy versus the outside strategy um, of getting inside community organizations, institutions, and reorganizing them from within to become spaces of direct democracy, um, or uh, judging instead that that's not realistic and, um, you know, building up new spaces of direct democracy outside of them that can challenge um, and replace them. And so I would just like to hear all of uh, your thoughts about um, how that transition might take place 
um, what kind of pathways you see um, that um, would enable um, real democracy to, to come into power. And be happy to have any of you go first. Did you say me? Uh, if you'd like, I said happy to have anyone. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, if, you, if you're ready. Um, I'm, ready. Happy to, I'm happy to throw just a, you know, a few ideas out there. I think it's probably along the lines of, you know, what we're all thinking of in terms of dual power and and finding pathways, but I would say, um, you know, starting small. So obviously, when we start at the very small micro level, we have lower barriers to entry. Um, that facilitates communication with the folks we're trying to organize with. Um, we can directly involve people in the decision making and push for changes that have a direct impact. So that just creates this feedback loop, empowering people, making people feel like. Um, these outside channels, the outside push, going outside the established institutions is actually more effective. And I think, you know, coupled with that is at every um, opportunity, practice direct democracy. So no matter what action we're in, engaged in, no matter what organizing effort we're engaged in, making sure we're practicing democracy within those efforts um, and direct participation. And um, I think, again, to go to that inside outside approach, there's uh, in, important work to be done in delegitimizing the, the institutions by ex exposing them for what they are. So I think a lot about the path forward for Mar Vista for all. We have three of 13 people were elected. We're in the minority on this very reactionary council. We're not going to get a hell of a lot done. Um, because we're in the minority and over the course of the campaign, you know, we were red baited and, and um, there was outcry about the fact that socialists were running for council. So um, there's going to be a strong attempt probably to quash whatever we want to do within the council. And so how do we make sure that this organization um, continues operating outside of the official council and um, and builds that um, that base within the neighborhood, I think base building can be done effectively at a hyper local level, door to door, you know, block by block through tenant organizing, through um, mutual aid and whatnot. Um, and bringing those, even potentially bringing those demands to this, to the neighborhood council, um, in the best case scenario, they're accepted, most more likely they'll be denied and exposing the council for what it is that it only represents you know these white property um, interests and business interests that it always has so um just as a process of radicalization and then that effort can then continue outside the council and maybe um remake the, these councils um in as dem more democratic institutions but at least put the pressure on in the meantime Awesome, thanks so much. Um, would anyone else like to comment on this? Um, yeah, oh, go ahead, Saki. Go ahead. Oh, you should, okay. Like um, the Cooperation Jackson quote, everybody else can speak before me. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, so I was just gonna say to kind of piggyback off of a bit of was getting into there, like it is really important to heighten the contradictions. Like I think that's gonna be a path forward for a lot of us. And that's a broad term. That's a you know, it can have a lot of different meanings to it. And so I'll get into a little bit of highlighting some of those might mean. So when I say heighten the contradictions, we had a really huge um I guess example of that with regards to the pandemic. When the pandemic popped off, all of the contradictions of capital were heightened pretty much to the max at the start of things. And they kind of panned out over time. There was some remediation and some restructuring around different areas, but ultimately we're still feeling a lot of the ramifications from the pandemic's impact on the global market and also just, you know, uh, the population in general. Um, and I think that an example of people who use those heightened contradictions to begin to mobilize and get people around, uh, get people to start thinking about new ideas was the different mutual aid groups that sprung up as a result of the pandemic and the uprisings that occurred over the summer. Um, I think the relationship and the understanding of mutual aid definitely became a part of the cultural zeitgeist in a way like it had never been before at least not in recent history. And that's a great thing, but also there's issues there that have to be addressed, which hopefully will be over time. Um, some of the issues are that there are folks who engage with the concept of mutual aid without an understanding of the practice and what it really means. But at the same time, you still have a lot of people who have engaged with it in a way that would be, uh, I would say, an example of its true meaning. And new forms of mutual aid have been developing as a result uh, of uh, you know the different conditions that folks have had to deal with. Um, I'm hoping that as we move forward and more things, unfortunately, you know these things have a lot of negative impact. Uh, and what I'm referring to when I say things are things like climate change and effects on the global food supply, um, which are often you know cyclical and feed back into one another. Uh, but as we move into a warmer world, a more fascistic world, a more, uh, you know, hyper-capitalistic world where the contradictions of all these forms begin to really crack and reveal themselves underneath the surface, um, there will be a, a period of broader extremism, but there will also be a period of more seeking of hope. And with that seeking of hope and new forms of organizing, I do believe that there will be an opportunity for people to be moved into some of these ideas around things like dual power and begin to really engage with organizing on the level of institution building, as opposed to just simply mobilizing people. It's always gonna be about that aspect. You have to mobilize people in order to build institutions. But I think building mass movements towards the aim of restructuring the society will become a more commonplace and will become a practice that people will begin to really find readily available to them as opposed to simply building movements for a particular political reason in the spur of the moment that peters out long-term actual institution and infrastructure building is going to be critical as we move into the, the next phase of our social you know arrangement social rearrangement and as, as I was mentioning, there are going to be extreme forces that are going to be working in opposition to what we're trying to aim for. But there's also going to be a much more broad 
desire for people to engage in new ways of organizing that they may have never heard of, that may have never engaged in, and that will step outside of the bounds of political organizing as it existed before, that may have never really piqued the interest of the general populace in a way in which a survival program pending revolution will definitely be able to really meet someone's basic needs in that moment and show them ways in which they can begin to take these matters into their own hands to meet their community needs as they arise and hopefully be proactive to be prepared to meet community needs before they become a crisis. Thank you, Glenn. Yeah, I like the next crisis, right? So um, I agree with, I mean, so I think that we have to be clear with ourselves um, and then like our communities that an inside outside strategy is limited. Um, and I agree with um, Bitta when you were saying that like engaging in, um, you know, the, like the like local municipal electoral process um, definitely helps to raise consciousness within the communities and our memberships, hopefully that we're in our, you know, neighbors that um, folks are organizing with. Um, and then, you know, on, and I think that a heightened contradiction is like, for the folks who do decide to run and get elected to be able to talk about and not necessarily worry about getting reelected to talk about like, what the limitations are, what the contradiction is, and the, and 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 um, you know, I, I think you said it like the housing that we're pushing for and affordable housing that we're pushing for is limited because of X, Y, and Z, right? And being able to talk about the Chamber of Commerce's and being able to talk about the the serious contradiction of this like federal, state, state, and city, and in Mississippi, the state can over turn what a city decides, right? And so Jackson, um, in a lot of ways, even when um, the city tries to enact something that's, you know, progressive, then the city, the state can swoop down and be like, no, 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 that can't happen in any city um, and preempt that kind of thing. Um, and then I also, you know, I feel, um, I was feeling disappointed um, that one of the offshoots and a lot of energy was going into coming off of um, all the like rebellions and the heightened stuff around like black and brown folks being killed and murdered and people, you know, taken to the streets that because the um, presidential election was coming up and other elections are coming up, we still got stuck in this like Democrat versus Republican. And then we started, I'm talking about black folks, started talking about electoral politics and electing black folks, especially black mayors. And I'm like, that been there, done that, we know that, right? There was a period of that. And what ultimately did that do for the majority of black people, for working class and poor black people? And so if we're talking about multiple strategies, like let's talk about multiple strategies and not put tons and tons of resources and money into um, electoral politics. So I'm gonna I'm a jump off of that and say that like an example that came to mind when you all were talking 
um, also was just like in Jackson, it was the pandemic and then a freeze. And so in February of this year, not only did we have the pandemic, we had a huge freeze and a freeze in Jackson and a freeze in Mississippi is um, like, don't know how to deal <laughs> with like snow and freeze. And it, on top of it, heightened the thing around health. It heightened like people's access to water, people's access to clean water, drinking water, potable water, and how long um, the city, even if it wants to, takes to, to like respond. Um, and even when, you know, you know, folks in other areas are trying to do mutual aid, like even how limited that mutual aid is, right? So like how prepared are we for disasters? How prepared are we? And I think that a lot of folks who, like Glenn was saying, a lot of people who had been doing mutual aid in that moment were able to rise to the occasion because like solidarity work and mutual aid work and those kind of things have been something that they were doing. Um, and I think that we have to make sure that we, we take from there, we learn from there and we grow from there, right? And so we did relief work coming off of the water crisis and now we're shifting that into what we had been thinking before, which is emergency prepared work, because we know that our communities are not prioritized when shit goes down. Um, and we do a lot in a lot of ways organically support each other and that's in small pockets. So how do we take that and have that be um, formalized and larger so that when the next crisis hits, um, whether that be based on climate or, you know, the economy or the political economy, how are we um, prepared to, to meet that? And so some of the words that I heard and I think are really important is like mobilizing, but moving beyond mobilizing and organizing, moving with the organizing to build institutions, shifting our reliance on capital, and that includes foundations, um, and then also looking at understanding like how capitalism works and how we have to intercede in that. And so the quote that you read, Mason, I think really speaks to us um, trying to push and thinking about not only how do we create goods and services in a more collective democratically way, but how are we actually producing the materials that go into those goods and services? How are we creating distribution chains? How are we doing all those different pieces so that we actually like, like can break capitalism? And that has to be not in a bubble in Jackson, Mississippi. It has to be in so many places that we connect both in this empire across the different cities, but then also on you know the type of international level that we're in when we're participating in um, fearless cities. Thank you so much. Um, Taj, did you have anything you want to add on this question? Yeah, uh, just quickly, I guess. Um, I agree with you know what all the other panelists have said, more or less. Uh, the only thing I would just add to it is that um, the need for building uh, parallel institutions is going to be greater 
much greater going forward because I think that the norm isn't going to be what we've all been dealing with throughout our lives. I think the norm for the situation is going to be more like uh, the year of 2020 happening over and over again in the sense that uh, the ecological crisis is here in the sense that what people thought was gonna be a few hundred years from now or even 50 years from now is happening now. And the institutions have not been doing anything about it since finding out about uh, climate change. And we're at a point where in some cases it's too late to roll it back. So we're going to have, and the institutions are showing like we're not even getting a Green New Deal, for instance, in America, you know, like, and that in itself was very limperist and wasn't really going to do anything in the long term of what needed to be done to really change the trajectory for life on Earth for uh, the global population, not just America. So I think that going, trying to work within the system and getting elected to councils is good work in a sense, but I personally think that it's mostly good for showing uh, the contradictions and showing that the current apparatus is in itself a dead end. And if anything, working within the system is good for showing the people who still think that we can tweak this and change it as opposed to dismantling it and rebuilding it from the ground up. Uh, it'll have, it'll lay the network, or at least, you know, people will recognize some, you know, people recognize people doing good work already. So I think that's really the best part of having people elected and trying to go through um, the current two-party system, because I don't think anything's actually going to get done by trying to infiltrate the Democratic Party, which is really the only route that progressives have in America right now, uh, large scale. So the ecological crisis will hasten uh, a resurgence of ecofascism, and we're already seeing it. And I think that that's really going to be the key uh, in fighting that and building institutions that are going to bring that to a head and have some alternatives. Right, no, no cavalry coming to save us. We gotta build the solutions ourselves. Um, so we have uh, just under 25 minutes left. Um, there haven't been new questions dropped in the chat. Um, but know that the question, open question period is open. If you think you want to ask a mirror panelist about, um, please just type them out. Um, but I have some other questions of my own that I can continue um, walking us through with, um, but would love to transition to some um, audience questions too. Um, I wanted to ask something uh, based off of what you had said at the end there, Saki, about um, the need to kind of be building this uh, infrastructure out beyond just the local level. Um, 
And I wanted to know your four's thoughts on how we can support and learn from each other's work um, across these different local contexts um, and what's, you know, this kind of organizing beyond the local um, can look like. Um, and Andrew's asked in the chat um, quite similarly. Um, so I think you could probably respond to um, both these at the same time. Um, what kind of ongoing communication exists between the various dual power projects within the United States slash North America, um, as well as internationally? I mean, I think it's hard. Um, I think it's hard to hold the on the ground local work and be engaged in regional work and be engaged in national work and then be engaged in international work um, and you know we've um, we've managed to do that and the capacity and how effective that is is different at different stages um, I would say um, and so the way that you know because it's like um we, we were able to get together and now we're getting together more remotely than in person and then you know in my experience we go back to the work that is like super stretched and capacity and just like you know like local crisis and that kind of thing um and we're not we're not always able to like hit up the person who were like oh yeah i got that person's card or i wrote that information down and you know i may have emailed once or twice and then you um don't stay connected like i think that's real <laughs> that's my experience with going to a lot of things and then at the same time like us having um like us having point people who are kind of like anchors for those different layers um, has, I think, been effective. Um, and then being able to, um, so for example, uh, within a lot of the national formations like the Grassroots Global Justice Alliance, Right to the City Alliance, Climate Justice Alliance, that then with um, IEN Indigenous Environmental Network formed It Takes Roots, like we have been able to maintain um, consistently participation and relationships within those alliances and then strategically prioritize like that within Climate Justice Alliance, we have an up, up south, down south, which is like Jackson and Detroit. Um, and so um, I, I think that there's one thing that comes to mind in terms of um, the dual power and kind of like what we're talking about within this Fearless Cities framework is um, symbiosis. Um, so if you, if people can look up symbiosis and you know that is um, that is I would say it's still emerging and forming, um, but that's one of the spaces that we've um, made a commitment to engage in 
um, on that level. And then, you know, in 2019, uh, one of the things that we did in strategic planning was like, you know, maybe it's chunks of time that we have to say, okay, we're really gonna build and go deeper with these relationships. So what is that within the African diaspora, um, within um, this body called Repaired Nations that um, developed uh, in an exchange and a trip to Ghana? Um, what is it in terms of, um, you know, this hemisphere with like, um, the African diaspora and um, our Latinx communities um, within like, you know, like Central South and the Caribbean. Like what is the one place? Um, and for us at that time um, was very much like Venezuela um, and one other place. And then within the US, like it's hard to say out of all these different groups, this is where we're gonna put like the most um, of our capacity and time into, and still I think that that's how we do it. And so forming strategic partnerships, um, I mentioned my being like the point person for right to the city and the homes for all South and really with my work with the community land trust and looking at developing cooperative housing, like th that has been my um, area. And so together with organizations that are in the South we launched Homes for All South with um, a couple of years ago to be able to focus on the South and because we also know and realize that like the South and what we're what we will be able to do um, for housing to be a human right, affordable housing, et cetera, is actually going to impact the whole country. Um, and so organizations and groups, I think, have to make the hard decisions around um, what are strategic partnerships? Where are they? How do you potentially at least have um, one or a few in kind of the different layers of the local, state, region, US, global? That's my, um, yeah, thoughts on it and experience. Thank you. Anyone else want to? Um weigh in on this? We also have another question in the chat from Autumn um, asking, earlier this week, I heard a panelist talk about the difficult transition of going from an oppositional force against local government to a governing force. You talked about your organization's experience with that transition um, and can you speak concretely to what dual power looks like once you're a governing force? Um, Saki, I feel like you're the only one here who can speak to some more concrete experience of being in local um, uh, government that's, you know, actually has some degree of power, but um, would welcome thoughts from um, anybody on, on this.
Um, I can go into a bit about the communication a bit, but yeah, I wouldn't be able to speak to the question of being a governing force too much. Um, the communication bit, I think uh, <clears throat> there's definitely a lot of networks that are trying to form and like informal, and I guess informal in some sense, uh, networks are emerging. Um, but a component that I think that has been lacking that folks in Black Socialists in America and other formations have been trying to bridge the gap on has been like the technological component of our ability to communicate. And so do, uh, Black Socialists in America has been developing an app called the Dual Power app that aims to be something along those lines that will be somewhat of a, a workspace similar to things like Slack, but also have the ability to, to have channels of communication between multiple different formations across the US as well as locally. And I think ideally uh, more projects along the, those veins that take along the technological component, we need more programmers, we need more engineers in their uh, respective um, you know, political programs to help us really start to build some of these things out so that we can compete and not even just compete, but change the social relations in general. Uh, with regards to how we can communicate and be able to move resources and skill sets and things of that nature really quickly um, in a transversal way that goes across, you know, not just the local conditions, but also to different, um, you know, different areas, you know, regionally, as, as Saki put it, regionally, uh, you know, locally, uh, nationally, and broadly. <clears throat> And I think that the idea that, you know, we can be able to really create these broad-based networks without having our own, you know, just as we're building parallel institutions, we're gonna need parallel networks of communication um, and ones that don't operate off the same logic as well as the current frameworks, because a lot of our current uh, systems of communication, they're, they're deeply steeped in these capitalist logics uh, of like communication, uh, I mean, sorry, of competition. Um, you know, you're competing for attention, you're competing for, uh, you know, like uh, people's resources, time, energy, things of that nature. And I think it's gonna be important for the communication networks that we build out to be deeply rooted in, you know, uh, direct democracy, to be deeply rooted in, uh, being able to collaborate with people as opposed to, you know, trying to basically get the one up on one another. So I think those are relations and uh, questions around communications that have to be thoroughly um, investigated as we begin to build out these networks, uh, both, you know, in the face-to-face -face level, but as well as in the digital space. It looks like they're Yeah. So I, I'll um, try to answer real quick um, the question from Autumn. And I would say this is based on like my Jackson experience and then also um, what I've studied and being able to go and see and learn um, in Barcelona. Um, and then a couple of other places, I guess, right? So, so I, I think that 
Um, so there is a difficult transition for organizations, both political and not political, I would say like grassroots organ organizations, right? That have been, um, that have been fighting for, fighting against policies and or fighting to have policies that are more favorable, like enacted. Um, and I think that it's a um, difficult transition um, because of the question of, you know, so the outside strategy, then there's like this inside outside strategy, and then all of a sudden you're like inside. And then what position are you when you're inside to all of the other folks who are like still on the outside that you were a part of and or like had relationships with, built coalitions with, you know, et cetera. Um, and so I think that um, it's so like in Barcelona and I had a little bit of um, a debate and it opened up like a conversation um, through the Rosa Luxemburg and Rights of the City housing roundtable between like Europe and um, North America around the decision that folks in um, Catalonia and Barcelona um, made around, if you were a member of, like you're a member of PA, and when you decide to run and become a, a member of the state <laughs> in some like governing capacity, that you're no longer a member of that organization. Um, and that was really interesting and different than the thinking um, coming out of, uh, like the Malcolm X Rice Movement, NAPO, and like the Jackson Kush plan. Um, and I would say, um, and this is uh, like me as Saki, not necessarily Cooperation Jackson, um, although I think we have a lot of alignment within Cooperation Jackson, is that um, for folks who want to do um, the becoming a part of local government, like it's really important to have that outside group that is still able to criticize, push, et cetera, even if it's your comrade who is in government, because I, I feel like that's that's our role, right? Like as organizers, um, as like community members who are trying to build, um, self-determination who are, you know, really trying to have what we call eco-socialism replace capitalism, um, that that can't get lost. Um, and, and I think that that's also what's difficult, the difficulty of um, having to fight, in some cases, your friends um, and your, you know, and, and, and keeping in mind that, like, there's a spectrum of who the enemy is, who your allies are, you know, yeah. Um, I hope that helps answer the question a little. And I think that that's like a whole conversation that definitely would be fruitful within like spaces like this um, when we're talking about dual power. I mean, I I um, wanted to, was there anybody who had a question? Cause I had wanted to hear, we have 10 minutes left from folks and I think I heard a little of it, but wanting to tease it out, um, like this idea of um, dual power 
meaning and they're from what I understand like three traditions right and so like are we, we are we talking about dual power in order to replace, replace overthrow the current state and system are we talking about it being a parallel that doesn't necessarily have to or want to replace um and that uh you know it's it's parallel and doing what it needs to do um and then you know there's like the there isn't a need for a state and really we shouldn't have the state apparatus and so it's more like eradicating the state like creating these parallels in order to ultimately like eradicate the state and operate in some whole different way um i'm curious um to know where people are when they talk about dual power with that um and then you know i think that um i think we would like to engage in like some real principle ideological struggle around like what we mean really when we're saying dual power and how does it get if we're saying that we agree to like these ends then how do we get there um together uh and then also even like this idea of real democracy um you know for like in cooperation jackson we say both direct and participatory um and for me um I, I tend to um, speak more to participatory because I think that um, it's different than direct democracy. And then I also think that there are limits to dem direct democracy if you're talking about like scale, scope, and like geography. Um, so I'm curious about what you all's thoughts are on that. So we have four minutes left. Um, so would love to hear everyone respond um, and use this as kind of like your closing uh, bit. Um, please do try to keep it concise um, so we have time to hear from everybody. Um, Bitta, we have not heard from you in a bit. Do you want to take a stab at this? Sure. Um, yeah, I think I think to close, I'd just like to maybe jump off of the last question in the chat, which is we can build dual power with the aim of replacing state power or with the aim of modeling what the state should do. And do these different aims have practical consequences for concrete action? Um, I think this speaks to what you were just talking about, Saki. And I actually do actually don't necessarily think they have practical consequences for concrete action. I think basically by modeling what the state should do, practicing outside of the state apparatus, what the state should be doing when the state has left everyone in the lurch um, is the transitional phase of, of creating dual power. And um, we can do this at every level. And I think that ultimately, you know, this will lead to the replacement of state power. And that doesn't necessarily mean in full up and down at every level, um, a replacement of state power. But I but I think that if we don't operate outside of and model what the state should be doing, then we're not going to create the, those opportunities for for replacing state power at, at these various levels, institutional levels. So um, I, I guess I would just say, um, those options that you mentioned, Saki, about dual power being overthrow, takeover, 
overthrowing takeover, acting in parallel, or eradicating the state altogether, they're all kind of part and parcel of the same thing, and it's all a transitional phase. Uh, Glenn, do you want to go next? Or Tosh, you're on mute. Go ahead, Tosh. I would say that um, there's really, at least for me, from my perspective, there's you know two types of dual power. There's the way that uh, Lenin, who I guess coined the term more or less, uh, used it, and I guess would also, under some circumstances, Maoist, which is where you take over the state, you become the state, you build up a parallel group, but then over over time, you actually take over the state apparatus and run it how you see fit. Whereas I think with us, especially in uh, ESA in Detroit, Build and Fight, we think of dual power as uh, Bookchin describes Proudhon as having uh, kind of theorized it in a, in a way, in the sense that you are building up uh, um, an institution or an organization that can do, can in some senses do the things that the state does, but without actually conforming to or becoming uh, the nation state itself. So, because I think that even though if you have the best intentions, once you get centralized power, it corrupts. And that has been the downfall of a lot of socialist movements uh, throughout history. Um, and Glenn, do you want to put in any final thoughts? I feel like Taj kind of actually hit it on his head with a lot of it. Um, that was a good closer. Um, I think the only thing that I would add to try to close it out would be just to say that, yeah, it's definitely going to be very important to make sure that we operate in a way where we don't allow ourselves to fall into the same trappings that a lot of previous projects have engaged in, where you basically replace the state and become a totalitarian state in yourself. Um, and uh, it's going to be super important to ensure that we have mechanisms in place to really decentralize power and put it in the hands of as many people that we're trying to have with as possible. Awesome. Thank you so much, Glenn. Um, really fantastic panel. Great questions. Um, and I will look forward to continuing this conversation. Um, thank you all for joining us. Thanks, all. Thanks. Thanks. Peace. Have a good one.